0: Thank you. <laughs> it's always nice to be here. Uh, I'm just coming from Abhayagiri. I just spent a month up at the monastery and uh, it's a lot cooler down here, <laughs> so I'm really feeling very comfortable this morning, which is nice. Um, I like to go to the monasteries and spend about two or three months a year at them if I can and really uh, you know, soak up the, the way of life, the way that the Buddhist uh, monks and nuns live. Uh, to kind of uh, just settle in and uh, live that life with them for a while, I find it to be incredibly helpful uh, in terms of uh, my own practice and uh, certainly in terms of understanding what the Buddha set up, you know, and, and uh, how um, it, it is, uh, affects a, a certain uh, waking up to difficulty and how we get out of difficulty. So, um, for, you know, and if, if people um, uh, find that interesting, I'm always happy to stay and talk a little bit afterwards and uh, talk about the uh, monastic life and what it's like to spend time at the monasteries. I, I suspect a lot of you do as well, but uh, um, I'm always available to talk about that if you'd like, okay? Mm-hmm. So what I wanted to talk about this morning is um, a topic that I've been reflecting a lot on in my own life, and my own practice, and talking a lot in groups and circles, and that's um, uh, looking at the stages of enlightenment. It can be tricky because... uh, you, you know, uh, one of the monks was telling me just even a little bit of thinking about you know the process and and where it's going and how to get there and uh, what I have to do and who I have to become in order to be an enlightened being. <laughs> you know, it can be very deadly because there's a lot of ways that we hold that um, in, uh, in, in that go completely fly uh, in the face of what the Buddha is teaching. You know, the whole process of um, waking up, the whole practice is designed to get us out of this tendency to lean into later and w- lean into what might be and what we might become, you know. So one has to take great care uh, when looking at this, um, this particular teaching, I think, uh, uh, just because of that tendency in our heart, you know, it's still very strong. So the wanting to be, the wanting to become, you can take that and apply it to all kinds of ideals. And when you apply it to these high-minded ideals, like enlightenment, (laughs) you know, it can really uh, throw a real wrench in the works, throw the whole thing off. So just to talk about it a bit and see, uh, you know, encourage people to reflect and consider What is our understanding of the process that we're engaged in? (coughs) And how, uh, looking at our own practice and seeing if we actually understand what's going on. So, (coughs) excuse me, so the the obvious uh, focus or place to begin is to look at this first stage uh, where Buddha talked about uh, certain uh, defilements of mind or distortions of view that are uprooted. Um, you know, at the beginning, uh, in the beginning of practice. So, uh, presumably, this is where we all are, you know, this is what we're working on, this is what we're looking at. So, it, uh, there can be great benefit in considering uh, what he's talking about here. So, actually, it's a the process unfolds in four stages, and um, ten uh, particular defilements of mind are uprooted. Uh, throughout the course of these stages. But in this first stage, there are three that are uprooted. Uh, and uh, these are um, self-identification view, uh, skeptical doubt and confusion in the mind, uh, and uh, attachment, as he called it, attachment to rites, rituals, precepts, and practices. This can be a real, uh, you know, just an intense, uh, you hear those, just those, uh, if Balm is put that way, it can feel like, you know, God, this is so, it can feel so heady and intellectual. So I'd like, just like to unpack it a little bit and try to make it real uh, for us. What's What are we looking at and what's happening in our lives? And these uh, are uprooted, he said. Um, in a way, the, what the practice does is, um, uh, it, it's. he compared it to like a lamp that is fueled by certain... Um, energy source of some kind, say perhaps oil, Uh, and uh, what happens is that through understanding that energy source um, is dried up and so that the lamp goes out. And so you can feel something in in that, just in that imagery, he's talking about something that is actually a very organic movement of the mind um, towards, in in a way, cleaning up its own act, (laughs) you know, losing the fuel uh, of uh, ignorance that is keeping us so stuck. So um, all of these fetters are some form of attachment of mind, uh, some form of uh, false view or identification with something that's a little bit off. And the shedding, he said, takes place, um, he used this wonderful image of a snake that um, at a certain period has to shed its skin. Not because there's something wrong with the skin, you know, but because it has outgrown it, in a way, through um, a, a certain kind of growth. And for us, the, the simile would be that the growth in our understanding, the growth in our wisdom, um, moves us to a place where we can shed ways of being, you know, ways of think, ways of mind that don't serve us. And in this image, he he said that the snake will often. Um, climb up on a rock or a twig or something like that and use the the friction against that object to help it remove its skin. You know, I've never seen this take place, but it must be a fascinating process. But um, he's using this imagery to convey a sense that um, we don't really do this alone you know we're doing it and the sangha is huge in the process of waking up we're doing it um, helping each other whether it's in a community like this or in our own homes or in our workplaces that the constant bumping up against each other and learning about what's going on in our minds as a result of that um, is the uh, is the means you know it's a so it's it's happening all the time you know i love that imagery it's not it's not something that um, some lofty ideal that we're trying to become. There's a process that's taking place right here and right now. So, let's uh, look at these, uh, just a little bit each one. It um, very, very, can be very, very helpful. Um, the first one is the self-view, self-identification view. Um, you know, a lot of people when they hear this teaching of the Buddha, this teaching of anatta, non-self, you know, you can, you can get these really fearful and contracted reactions. You know, like, like somehow um, meditation practice or living the Eightfold Path is going to annihilate us. You know, uh, and it can be scary. Uh, it really, um, but I think that uh, overcoming self-view and understanding what the Buddha is talking about with this teaching is a lot easier than we make it. And it's uh, it's actually a lot uh, easier to do than we imagine it to be. Um, And it has to do with um, understanding and observing in our own lives and in our own, certainly on the meditation cushion, but also throughout the course of the day, just seeing this uncanny and unbelievable tendency of the mind to form views about what is happening and see the effect of that. It's all tied up with his teaching on the khandas, the five khandas, and Sanya in particular, uh, the perception khanda, you, you, he says, like, notice that this is what the apparatus of the mind does. It, it, it takes this moment's experience, and then it, it's like it says something about it. <laughs> you know, it, it forms a view. Or, it reiterates it. it, it kind of turns it back and tells itself what's just happened. You know, have you noticed this, like, like you might have a chill, and there's this moment of the chill, you know, that's very real, and that's real, very present. But then, in, in the seconds following that, in the less than seconds, milliseconds following that, there's this little movement in the mind that says, oh, I'm cold. I better get a jacket on. It's like, it's like the mind is articulating to itself what just happened. And, uh, and if we don't notice that, it can also go into all kinds of proliferation. I mean, that's a very simple example, but it will proliferate endlessly about what is happening. Right? Just, uh, and so, it's like noticing that tendency in the mind. And that view-making tendency is the exact same thing that we're talking about with self-view. The, the um, language here I think is fascinating. The, his choice of words. Self-view. It's a view of self in relation to what really is not self. It's just experience. It's just phenomenon. You know, so, that just, get, just noticing this through the course of our practice and the effect of that. It's like you don't want to make it something wrong or something that you want to stop doing even. You don't even have to stop doing that. But just noticing the effect of that. And the effect is that it's actually, it, it takes us out of experience. And we so, like, the the experience of being awake and present is very direct, it's very real, it's here. (laughs) But if you've constantly got this persnickety little tendency in the mind that is saying something about here, doing something with here, (laughs) doing something with the cold, with the hunger, with the irritation or the thing that somebody said, the thing that somebody did, then what you're going to move into is this constant spinning in the mind and thinking and thinking and thinking about experience and the effect is that that's where we live. So it's like that that um, experience of being ever so slightly removed from life all of the time. (laughs) It's so annoying. It's like we're, we're constantly just a little bit off to the left or the right of what's happening and not actually in it. You know? and so, so, it's like, to me, uh, waking up to this tendency and just, you, you just learn not to do it. You just learn not to... It, it, can, it can happen, but you just notice it and you don't give it any energy. You just keep coming back. This is what the training and the meditation is all about the coming back to the breath, coming back to now. We're actually training the mind to just relax and be alive, be settled in the experience. I think part of why it's so difficult is that in order to do that, you have to butt up right smack dab in front of impermanence, suffering, and no self. You, you, you know, that, that's where you have to, you have to accept life on its terms. This is the way life is, good things end, you know, um, there is difficulty, there's, there's pain in just having a body, there's difficulty in um, uh, losing, be, uh, losing things that we have that we, that we don't want to lose, and uh, associating with things that we don't like not getting what we want this is all um, what one has to realize by by what one will realize by staying in the present moment and realizing that we just no matter how much we manipulate and try to control our world in the end it's happening according to some other rules <laughs> it's not it's not being directed by us We're aware of it, and we're in it, and we can experience a a lot less suffering and difficulty if we just settle into the actual direct experience of it. So this uh, this is no small this is not this is not outside of what you're working on as meditators and practitioners. So this is if you can see what he's saying. This is one of the first things. That one comes to understand and experience and know and realize within oneself, and that you know, that deepens, doesn't it, over time? you sort of, you, sort of, you hear the Buddhist teachings, you hear some of this say, "Oh, that's cool, okay, I think that might be right. Let me have a look, and you look over months, years, perhaps lifetimes <laughs> and we we begin to see it, you know. And then over that process of of looking at experience, being with experience in this new way, our lives become happier and happier and happier, a lot less stressed. So this is what he's pointing to, um, noticing this tendency and really endeavoring to see for ourselves that it's happening, how it's happening, and the effect of that in the moment. The effect of being caught in it, and the effect of not being caught in it. Just noticing that so that we can figure it out for ourselves. So that we can get this, internalize this wisdom, this understanding, this experience for ourselves. You know, it can't be um, held as an idea. Oh, I get an atta. I know that. It <laughs> <You know, laughs> has to be known directly. Yeah? That's that's a rich one. And it's what we're all engaged in. Now, it, it leads um, very naturally uh, into a discussion of the second one that's uprooted at this uh, first stage in practice. And that's uh, what he referred to as um, skeptical doubt. And uh, technically, the way that this is defined is... Um, having a certain lack of faith in Buddha-Dhamma-Sangha, in the the Buddha, in his teachings, and and the the fact that one can uh, realize truth for oneself. So, you know, basically what he's saying here is that um, one has to validate our understanding directly. We, in essence, have to do what the Buddha did, you can't take the Buddhist teachings and just um, study them and um, intellectualize about them and uh, think that it's going to bring us to any place of realization. Um, it will help. He's, he never uh, said that the intellect was a bad thing. The intellect is a tremendous support, a great help in practice. but in the end, um, things have to be known in a lot more direct way. And and that uh, will bring about a knowing and an understanding that um, is very solid, you know, is very strong, because it, one has internalized the teachings for oneself. <clears throat> so there's a, there's a, a wonderful um, sutta um, where he talks about this... Uh, It's a very famous sutta. You may have studied it already, uh, called the uh, the Kalama Sutta. Uh, It's very a very uh, interesting little community where one of the places where the Buddha would teach, and um, it was kind of at at a crossroads. Uh, This town or village um, was um, at a crossroads, a major crossroads in uh, the area where the Buddha lived, and. Um, that meant, if you can just imagine, if you're kind of like the the hub of, of a, a lot of different roadways coming through your community, then um, you you bring travelers from all different areas will be passing through your area. Well, at this time of the Buddha, uh, those travelers were uh, often the ascetics and teachers and philosophers of all different kinds of religious and spiritual teachings, you know. So the Kalamas had this uh, uh, embarrassment of riches, you know, where they had all kinds of um, teachers coming through and, and teaching them. And um, the trouble was, though, the downside of that is, what if they all are saying different things? <laughs> then uh, the Kalamas were very confused. And uh, they didn't know who to believe or, or what to believe, what teaching to follow. To take to heart. So then, here came the Buddha, and um, they went and asked him. Uh, and uh, it was particularly, I think, they were exploring a question about karma and rebirth. And they had asked a number of different teachers, and they had gotten different different answers. And so they said, "Well, what do we do? What what? Um, who do we believe? And, and how do how do we believe?" And it's very interesting the the Buddha's response. Um, because he said that, uh, you know, in, in essence, he said, well, no wonder you're confused, you know. You, you, you ha- there's, there's a lot out there, and uh, not everybody is speaking the truth. And you need to, um, uh, you, you haven't understood the, the way that you come to realizing the truth for yourselves. And so he said, and, and this is critical, uh, a critical part of the Buddhist teachings I know that some, something that many people I've talked to, talked to say is actually the reason why they love Buddhism so much is that it doesn't require you to believe anything in fact he discourages belief and he says take the teachings to heart so this is what he's told them he said "Well, take the, he's, take the teaching take, take what they're saying and apply it practice it. And if it leads to your welfare and the welfare of other people, if it leads to good, if it's blameless, if it's beneficial, uh, if it leads you to a place of freedom and happiness, you can trust it. Yeah? It's a very interesting, you know, re- response because basically he's, he's 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 turning this whole thing right around, and putting it right back in their lap, you know. Saying, because if, if, if he knew, if he tells them and tries to convince them that this is the way that it is, it doesn't work. It doesn't work, you know. We all know that. You, know, you, you can see all kinds of um, people who have certain religious beliefs, who proselytize and go around and try to convince everybody else that they're Right. And that's really coming from a place of not knowing that they are, if they are. It, once you know, then that whole um, need to convince, internally or externally, will completely drop away. Wow. You just to feel that state, <laughs> you know, it's like, wow. You know, imagine that the stillness, the, the sense of comfort and ease... That one has, and I suspect that many of you, all of you in this room, you can can feel that increasing through the months and years of practice. You know that sense of oh man, yeah Buddha, <laughs> you know this is working. This this is working for me. I, I'm getting free. I'm getting happier. You know I'm kinder. I understand more. You know, so, so that's exactly what he's pointing us to. He wants us to have that. He wants us to experience that. To know that feeling of overcoming doubt and confusion in the mind. Complete and utter confidence in the Buddha. Which means the capacity within us to be awake. The awakening within ourselves. Yes, the Buddha, the historical Buddha. You you get, in the process, you you generate a tremendous amount of appreciation for this person. But the the, taking it to heart is a lot more about um, going to that knowing. That, like strengthening within this heart, the, the knowing of truth the direct experience of truth. So that one is awake, one has internalized completely that knowing. And what we know, the Dhamma, you know, primarily the Four Noble Truths and the, uh, the insights that we have into impermanent suffering and no-self. You know, you, you, over the months and years of practice, you, you, don't you? You get to. He's right, man. <laughs> this guy said it. He's right. It really is impermanent. It really is suffering. And there really is no self. You know you, you, that gets deeper and deeper. And then that sense of um, ranking oneself among the, the group of people who are awake. You know, awakening up, and uh, you find yourself um, gravitating. Towards more and more towards people who will support, and uplift, and um, strengthen your own knowing, right? Not towards the the situations and the conditions and the people who keep taking us away. You know, we we I think I I hear this a lot among uh, in Buddhist circles that one of the wonderful fruits of practice. Has been just a, an increased certainty about where, who you want to be with and how you want to spend your time. You know, that, that kind of thing. Very important. So it all gets, it all gets strengthened and, and purified. It said in one of the suttas, it says, as this kind of knowing increases in, in each of us, Mara trembles. Yeah, You, you, I, you just take, even take that symbolically as your mind states, you know, you know, hatred will start to tremble because it can't sustain itself in the presence of an awake mind, you know. It just, it can't be there, it can't coexist. So that um, uh, the more awake that we become, the, the less that energy, that uh, energy of mar, uh the less power that it has in our minds. So that's that's a beautiful one. I mean so it's watching it, noticing it throughout the months and years of practice that uh, indeed one is waking up. Indeed, one is becoming more wise. Indeed, one's understanding is growing. And you know, to, to say that and to know that with utter conviction, This is not, I think we can shy away from this because it feels like conceit. This is not conceit. This is the way of an awakening mind. We have to know. We have to know beyond any doubt. So to to, uh, trust our knowing is absolutely critical. So this this last one is really interesting. Um, attachment to rites and rituals, precepts and practices, um, and there's a lot. I mean, we could go, we could have a whole course for a couple of months on this one, I think, but just to to try to tease out the main points that uh, I think are, are, are worth looking at in our experience. Uh, this has to do with um, like not thinking that one can simply apply techniques or take certain practices at the level of ideas and try to get good at the practices and something's going to happen. <laughs> Which uh, I think is it's very common. I certainly did it for a very long time. and. Uh, you know, uh, most people I talk to, we, we, you can't, it can't be otherwise. In a way, when we first come to practice, we have ideas about what it all is, and we're trying to, to make those ideas, um, uh, trying, trying to get the ideas right, essentially. So what he's pointing to is basic, um, basically the several kinds of practice that we do. So we talk about um, Donna as a spiritual practice. Uh, sila, the uh, Donna is generosity. Sila, or living well, good moral conduct as a spiritual practice. And uh, the meditation, the meditation as a spiritual practice. So I think that what he's pointing to here is encouraging us, encouraging an examination of how it is that we are holding these in our hearts and in our minds. What's our understanding and how are we living them? How are we actually practicing them? I, I'd asked one of the senior monks about this, like, what was his take on this particular thing? Because uh, a lot of people think that the Buddha, initially, maybe just think that he was just taking pot shots at a lot of the Hindu practices at the time, um, because, there, you know, you could pay some money and to a Brahmin, and he would like some incense and burn some candles and you know it's kind of like voodoo kind of thing where this, this you know you could uh, get a loved one into the heaven realms or you know you could uh, divine a winning lottery number or something like this you know that that, that, that there are certain um, rituals that one can do and that they will affect a certain liberation or have a certain effect and perhaps he is because he was trying to get away from this but um, the, the, my teacher said, uh, it's, it's a lot more um, subtle than that, uh, what he's trying to get at. That, that really, um, when you look at, it, look at our minds and look at the way that we are, that the, the highly conditioned tendency, the human default, if you will, is to go into automatic pilot, you know, on anything. Is like you take a little bit of something, a little bit of knowledge, and and then just you know start apply, start living it, and and then um, if it doesn't work, then you can blame the teacher, or you can blame Buddhism, or you can blame something else, because it's like you know um, it's their fault. You know, But really what's actually happening is that we haven't we haven't put any effort into it. We haven't really endeavor to take the teaching to heart for ourselves. And so, um, but it's easier this way because you don't, you can live life a lot more superficially, you know, and so I think what he's getting at here is to to don't settle for superficial understanding of dhana and sila and bhavana, but actually work in our practice to, to take to heart what's going on here. So like, say, for example, with dhāna, um, the practice of dhāna, um, you know, we, uh, in, let's say, in Asian countries, um, they, they've taken this in a way that says that, uh, they've taken to heart some of the Buddhist teachings where he says that if you give, if you give to support Dhamma centers, temples, the Buddhist monks and nuns and what have you, then uh, that will result in a happy rebirth. You know, that's right there in the suttas. And so, um, people have taken that uh, literally, and then they get all focused on um, giving and giving and giving and supporting. But it, it's all done w- within uh, the context of this teaching on merit, where one is making merit so that one will have a happy rebirth. So, you know, and it, it's not that that isn't true, and it's not that that's, you know, he said this, that 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 is a fruit. But if you can see the, the subtlety here, it's like doing it for that purpose distorts it. Then it, It's actually completely self-absorbed, which is the opposite of what the practice of dhana is trying to get us to. It's trying to get us to, um, uh, it, it's the main antidote we have for um, self-absorption. Give, <laughs> you know, give, 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 not accumulate, get, acquire. You know and that the, the, all the energy is moving out towards the welfare and concern of other people you know so uh, and, and maybe that doesn 't speak to so much to us as as Westerners because we don 't particularly hold um, the, the practice of generosity in that way, but I think we have our own distortions you know we look at our culture and how we hold it, and uh, we have a, a culture that 's really it, there's a lot of giving in the culture, but it, and it, it's all, a lot of it is within the context of say, volunteerism, and giving to non-profits, and tax deductions, and all this kind of thing, where it's like it's a, or giving because, um, one of the things the Buddha said that is a distortion of giving, is giving because it's a good idea. You know, giving out of a notion uh, you know, other distortions are like giving to get, you know, giving because it's my turn, you gave last time, so I give this time, you know, that kind of thing. But really, um, trying to point us to the whole purpose of generosity is to purify this heart. It, it, it's a purification process. It, it's like, a, like and, and so really practicing generosity is about noticing what's going on in the heart, in the giving, and the not giving. And seeing for oneself what it feels like. And noticing, because man, there is nothing like generosity to give you chill bumps all over your body and to make you really happy. (laughs) It's like, you know, that experience of being free of the need to hold on. And instead, that realizing that the, the, the tremendous happiness of offering—it's it's almost like it's innate. It's in st- it's part of our nature, our true nature. And it's like finally we're getting in sync with it. You know, <laughs> whoa! That, that that my the movement in my heart towards your welfare, concern, um, and action towards your welfare—that's <sighs> That's optimal human beingness. That's what he's moving us towards with this. So really reflecting on this, noticing our, what's going on in our hearts in this experience. And, and it's okay in the not giving, just noticing that. See? So it's not, like it's, it's not like if you hold as an idea you should give, then when you don't, when we're not being generous, then it's a setup. We're just going to turn around and start beating up on ourselves. You know? And it has to be held neutrally. It, it, one, if we don't, it doesn't matter. Give or don't give. That doesn't matter. Find out what the experience is and um, see for ourselves. See, see how all of this is taking us to see for ourselves. What is, he, what is he saying here? What's Donna all about? Same with Sila. What's, what's that all about? living well, you know, to, to practicing the precepts, we can get caught up in trying to get the rule right. You know, trying to like, like hold a, one should be this way. You know, one should behave in this way. You see, it's not, it's not that there isn't a, a, a realization that it is good to behave well. But when it's being held in this way, We're missing the potential of practicing Sila, which is to notice um, and discover for ourselves the law of karma. Actions have consequences. Unskillful actions bring unskillful results, unhappy results. Skillful actions bring happy results, and if we can feel that for ourselves, then it's like the whole system starts to move in the direction. It's like you, 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 you know, it, it, the whole system wants the path of least resistance. <laughs> you know, you find out that it feels much better to live harmlessly, kindly, with generosity, holding each other with respect. You know, treating not treating each other like objects, speaking well. When we find that out for ourselves, then you just start to move out of the patterns that are in the opposite direction. You feel that? So it's really very powerful when you take it to heart, take, taking sila to heart. And then the same is true with the, uh, the meditation practice. You know, you can, we can hold the idea of um, mindfulness, hold the idea of um, being concentrated, and then try to become that. Versus, right here, right now, what is the experience of being present and aware? Can I become more and more familiar with the direct experience of that and endeavor to live that from moment to moment in my life? That's what it's about. It's not about getting the right technique, Getting uh, concentrated jhanas and uh, you know making myself be mindful. One should be concentrated and mindful. It's about um, feeling it, knowing the experience of this for ourselves, and, rec- and putting in the proper perspective what the formal practice is versus what we might call the informal or the rest of life. So it's about a 24-7 kind of thing. It's about presence of mind and wakefulness all of the time. And the formal practice, held in the proper perspective, is seen then as a tool. That's not meditation. That's not the meditation. It's a tool. It's a a means. It's a, a formal applying oneself to this effort to be relaxed and aware but if we don't understand that then you get all kinds of fixated on uh, retreats and uh, sitting on the cushion as all of that that's the practice and and one keeps trying to do more of that because that's the practice but that's, that's only the mechanism that's only a, 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 a structure for uh, the practice, which is all the time, <laughs> right? It's like if you want to learn how to play the piano, you set some time aside, and you and you you work a little bit more deliberately on it. But um, that's not what it's for. It's so you can play the symphony, you know. <laughs> it's so you can live the life. So just really getting it, and so I think um, all of the 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 um, months and years of our, our practice. Um, certainly if you reflect back on when you first came to the practice right up till now, you know, this is what has been going on. This is what it's about. Uh, coming to understand um, and break through these uh, first three uh, defilements of mind so that we can be happy. You know, Ajahn Amara always says that the Buddha gets a bad rap, you know, that uh, he's the ultimate pleasure seeker. <laughs> <laughs> He's trying to make us happy, and, and this is uh, this is how it's done. So I'll offer these thoughts for your reflection this morning, and uh, certainly happy to field some questions if you'd like to take a few minutes, and, and uh, certainly happy to stay back if uh, you'd rather ask something more privately. Do you have some thoughts or questions? Where are the ten reflections? Oh, dasa Um Let's see. You can get them online. Um. <laughs> they are in the suttas. <laughs> but if you go to um, the Abaya Gary website, and they're in the chanting book. Ten recollections for free, ten subjects for frequent recollection. Well, thank you. Thank you for your presence and attention. And as I said, I'm very happy to stick around and talk some if you like. My favorite thing to do. (laughs) Take care. See you tomorrow night.